All right. Happy Easter, everybody. He is risen. Amen. So good to see so many of you here today. And welcome to all of you who are joining us on live stream as well. <clears throat> so um, before we get into today's message, I, I just want to acknowledge uh, that on Friday, one of our longtime members here at St. Paul's, Joe France, passed away. And uh, I sent out an email on Friday afternoon that I hope you saw. If you were a member or regular attender, uh, you should have received that. So I hope this is not the first that you're hearing about this. Um, but Joe was 87 years old, and uh, he was our most senior member at St. Paul's. Uh, he's been here as long as I can remember and well before that, and um, he is going to be dearly missed. He actually hadn't been feeling well for a while. If you had been uh, following any of the messages on the Facebook core, you know that. Uh, he had been uh, going from the hospital to a rehab center, kind of back and forth over the last month or so. And very early on Friday morning, the Lord decided to take him home. Uh, so I, I encourage you to keep Gladys in your prayers. Uh, Joe and Gladys are an incredible example of long-term faithfulness uh, to, to Christ and to each other. Uh, they were married for 62 years, which is beautiful. And uh, so I do encourage you to, uh, to pray for her, to uh, express your, your sympathy. Uh, we are going to be having a memorial service right here this coming Saturday, April 10th. Uh, it'll be at 1.30. And uh, so I encourage you to come and celebrate Joe's life here on Saturday. I think it's fitting that Joe passed on Good Friday. Uh, he, he followed Jesus all of his life, and Jesus passed on Good Friday as well. Uh, and on Good Friday, of course, we recognize the curse of death. And on Good Friday, I certainly felt the curse of death, uh, hearing the news about, about Joe. But of course, on Good Friday, we also look forward today to today. We look forward to Easter, where we celebrate that there is someone who is stronger than death. On that first Good Friday, Jesus bore the curse of death, but death could not keep its hold on him. And scripture tells us that now that Jesus has overcome death, he holds the keys to death, which means he has the authority to grant eternal life to anyone he wishes. And so we can be confident that death is not the end of Joe's story. Uh, Joe knew and loved the one who holds the keys to death. Joe knew and loved the one who said, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. Amen? Amen. So it is appropriate to mourn, but as scripture tells us, we don't mourn like those who have no hope. So, let's look at the story that our hope is rooted in this morning. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to uh, Luke chapter 24. And uh, as you turn there, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this Resurrection Sunday, this special morning where we remember that you have conquered the grave 
that through you we have victory over sin, death, and the devil. Lord, we celebrate that this morning. And Lord, we're, we're mindful of the France family. Uh, we pray, especially for Gladys, Lord, that you would be with her right now and that you would surround her with your presence and your peace. Lord, we pray that on this Sunday, uh, the, the peace that comes, the hope that comes from knowledge of the resurrection would be more powerful to Gladys and to us than it ever has been before. Lord, we, we pray that you'd help us to attend to your word right now. We pray that you would open us up to receive whatever it is that you want to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. This is going to be a passage that's a little bit longer than what we normally do here at St. Paul, so try to stay focused. There's a lot to take in, uh, but I want us to recognize details that are over the course of this whole passage. So, here we go. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find the body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. All right, a lot to take in there. Um, But there's some important details that I want us to notice. So, first thing I want us to recognize. This goes out of its way to teach us that Jesus' resurrection was physical. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, Jesus, you know, it was a spiritual resurrection. Like his, his spirit floated around and appeared to people like a ghost. But that is clearly not what the gospel wants us to think, right? The gospel tells us clearly that the tomb was empty. Uh, there were just linen strips lying on the floor, linen strips that had wrapped up his body, but the body was gone. So... Why would the tomb be empty? Why would there be no body if it wasn't a literally physical resurrection? And then, of course, verse 37 told us that when the disciples first saw Jesus, they thought, oh, he's a ghost. He must be a ghost. They thought what a lot of people say today, that this was a spiritual resurrection, not a physical one. But Jesus tells them very clearly, no, touch and see. Look, I've got a physical body. I am flesh and bone." Just like you. And you might have noticed that that detail about him eating a piece of fish, it seems a little like extraneous, unnecessary. Why is that put in there? Such a minor thing that Jesus would ask for something to eat. Well, the reason is because it's more evidence that Jesus was physical, right? A living, breathing, eating uh, being. Ghosts don't eat. So I hear. (laughs) Um, So, clearly, this is trying very hard to make it clear to us. Jesus' resurrection was physical. However, at the same time, we have to recognize that Jesus' resurrection body 
is different in some ways from his pre-resurrection body. It's not exactly the same. You know, people who knew him don't recognize him right away. The, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they didn't recognize him. Uh, in, in John's gospel, when Mary Magdalene first sees him, she doesn't recognize him until Jesus says her name, and then all of a sudden it clicks, and she realizes, oh, yes, this is my rabbi. Jesus' body is also different because it doesn't seem limited in the same way that physical bodies normally are limited. Right? He seems to have this power to disappear and reappear at will. He can apparate. Right? Um, even though he was brutally beaten just a few days ago, clearly he's healed. Right? He's not walking around wounded and bloody. I'm pretty sure no one would have any trouble recognizing him at all if that's, that were the case. Right? But he's healed. He's, he's been fixed. However, very interesting, at the same time, his body still bears the marks of the crucifixion. Did you notice that? Like, how, how does he prove to the disciples that it's him? He shows his hands and his feet. Why? Because his hands and feet have the marks of the crucifixion. Right? So he's not bloody, and he's not wounded and in pain, but you can still see the scars. So one way of putting it is that Jesus' resurrected body is discontinuous with his pre-resurrection body. It's different in some ways. And it's also continuous in some, in some ways. So all that to say, Jesus is physically risen. <clears throat> it is a physical resurrection. Something happened to his pre-resurrection body, and that's why it's not there anymore. However, his body is different than before. And the way I like to put this is it's like his physical body has received a software update, right? Uh, Jesus is humanity, humanity 2.0. All the bugs have been fixed. You know how your, your uh, cell phones have those software updates, right, where they try to fix the bugs. Well, this is the, the perfect software update for a physical body, for humanity. Jesus is humanity 2.0. And the great news is that scripture says that Jesus' resurrected body is the first fruits of a much larger harvest. So what has happened to Jesus, because Jesus has conquered death, conquered sin, conquered the devil, is also going to happen to those who follow him. So we also get to look forward to being humanity 2.0 eventually, having all the bugs fixed and living forever in a resurrected body. Now, maybe you hear all this and you, you're thinking, amen, hallelujah, yes, I can't wait, awesome. But I know some of you might be sitting here or watching online and thinking, I just don't know if I can buy this. You know, this seems a little out there. I've been around long enough to know that when people die, they don't come back. And it seems like we've got thousands of years of history that we can look back on that makes it clear that when people die, they stay dead. Right? So why should I believe that this happened? That this, there was this one occasion where someone rose from the dead and never died again. Well, if that's the way you are thinking right now, the first thing I want to admit is that I cannot prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that the resurrection happened. Can't do that. Nobody can. I can offer you evidence, but I can't prove it to you. 
Of course, that's also true of every truth claim, right? Uh, I cannot prove to you if you're about to get on a plane that the plane won't crash. I can give you evidence that there's very little likelihood that the plane will crash. I can point you to a website that indicates you're more likely to die by being struck by lightning at some point in your life than to die in a plane crash. But can I prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you get on that plane, it's not going to crash? No, of course not. I can't do it. But that example of the plane, I think, should be instructive to us because it reminds us that just because we can find reasons to doubt something doesn't mean that we shouldn't put our faith in it. You can find examples of times when planes have crashed. You can. But that doesn't mean that it is unreasonable to get on a plane. right? And you can find reasons to doubt the resurrection, definitely. But that fact alone does not mean that it is unreasonable to put your hope and trust in the resurrection. Recently, I was reading a blog by a young man, a guy in his 20s, who grew up in the church. Um, he had been a, a youth pastor for a while. And he decided that he didn't believe anymore. Doubts accumulated in his mind, and he left the faith, and now he's created this blog that's all about his, his deconstruction and his leaving the faith. And uh, I looked at his website, and I found this one post by him about the resurrection in my studies this week for Easter. And uh, I read the post, and what was very interesting to me is he said that he had done quite a bit of, of research on the resurrection. He had even read this book that was like 700 pages. And he said that after studying all that, he came to the, the conclusion that belief in the resurrection is not unreasonable. But he said, but I still don't believe it. Right? So one way of putting it is, you know, to put it in terms of the plane analogy, uh, he would say, I think it's reasonable to believe that that plane won't crash. I understand why people choose to believe that, and I can respect that. But I personally am not totally convinced the plane isn't going to crash, so I'm not going to get on it. That's basically uh, where he was, he was at. And I thought that was very interesting, right? Here's a guy who has chosen to, to leave the faith and who has a whole blog just devoted to deconstruction and, and walking away from the faith. And even he says, I think it's not unreasonable to believe in the resurrection. If you look at history, if you really examine the issue, it's not unreasonable. It's pretty significant. Because none of us are all-knowing, there is an element of faith to every decision we make. One way of putting this is because none of us are omniscient. That's the fancy word for knowing everything, right? There is an element of faith to every decision that we make. And that's important to recognize. You cannot be sure when you sit on a chair that it's not going to collapse. I mean, you have plenty of reason to think it probably will hold you up, but you can't be sure. I'm especially not sure about those ones on the side, actually. No, they never collapse as far as I know. But... Uh, you, you can't be 100% sure, right? So, all throughout our lives, by necessity, we exercise faith. Life is about making choices. What am I going to put my faith in? What am I going to choose to trust? 
But you necessarily have to do that because you cannot know everything, right? Now, I believe that choosing to put our faith in the resurrection is a plane worth boarding. It is a plane worth boarding, to put it in terms of the analogy I've been using. And if you allow me to push this metaphor a little bit further, I believe it is a plane worth getting on for two reasons. One, because there's a lot of reasons to think it won't crash. There's a lot of reasons to think that the resurrection actually happened, that this is trustworthy to believe in it. And number two, because of the destination that the plane is going to. You know, if, if you're a little uncertain about whether a plane is trustworthy, you're still going to get on it if you think that it's the only way to get to where you really want to go. Right? The resurrection has the potential to take us to where we really want to go because the resurrection has the potential to fill our lives with hope and meaning and purpose and ultimately to eternal life. That's a destination worth a little bit of risk, right? So let's take a little bit of time this morning to talk about why belief in the resurrection is not unreasonable. Okay, this is a big topic, and I'm not going to be able to cover the whole thing in 30 minutes. Um, if you're really curious, I encourage you to pick up a book like The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. Be forewarned, though, it's 850 pages, so you have to be really curious. <laughs> um, but that's kind of like the gold standard of uh, investigation into this. But I do want to take some time to just make a few points that might help open you up to this possibility of the resurrection if you're struggling. So, I've got, I've got five things. Five reasons to believe in the resurrection to, to open you up. Okay, number one, lots of people throughout history, before Jesus and after, claimed to be the Messiah. Did you know that? I remember when I was at UConn, I took... Uh, a Judaic studies class, and the Jewish professor would often remind us of that. Lots of, lots of people throughout history have claimed to be the Messiah. But Jesus is the only one anybody remembers. And, and that's because normally when one of these supposedly messianic figures died, everyone would just kind of shrug their shoulders and go, well, I guess he wasn't the one we were waiting for. But with Jesus... After his crucifixion, his followers then went on to boldly proclaim that Jesus is risen. So we have to ask, well, what was different about the Jesus movement from all these other messianic movements? Why did it continue? Why does it continue to this day? What kept it going? And the explanation that Jesus' followers would give you would be because we saw the resurrected Jesus. If it, if it had ended at the crucifixion, then yes, the Jesus movement would have ended like all other messianic movements. But the early followers said, we kept it going because we saw Jesus. So that leads us to the second reason, which is the disciples had nothing to gain by proclaiming that Jesus is risen if they actually didn't think he had. The disciples had nothing to gain by proclaiming Jesus is risen if they didn't actually think he had. They had just seen Jesus get crucified, right? 
they knew the attitude that the authorities had toward Jesus. They knew that it was dangerous to say the things that Jesus was saying. They knew everybody was against him. And yet, they still went forward with proclaiming this message that could get them killed. And it, what history tells us is that it did eventually get them all killed. That the disciples were martyred, with the possible exception of John, uh, for, for proclaiming that Jesus is risen. They didn't gain worldly fame and glory by spreading this message. So it's very hard to explain the disciples' behavior unless they actually experienced the resurrected Jesus. If Jesus had not resurrected, the disciples would have known. But history makes it clear to us that the disciples believed Jesus had risen, that they proclaimed that message at great cost to themselves, right? And it's just so hard to explain that behavior apart from they actually experienced the resurrected Jesus. So that's number two. Number three, culturally, the disciples would not have been predisposed to expect the resurrection. They would not have been predisposed to expect the resurrection. Now, Jews at the time did expect that a time would come, they called it the end of the age, when all the godly people would be resurrected. But there was no tradition that said, well, one guy is going to be resurrected first. He's going to be the first fruits of the larger harvest. That just wasn't an idea at the time. So the disciples would not have been inclined to come up with something like this. It wasn't part of the cultural, theological milieu uh, that they were a part of. So, number four. The resurrection accounts are not the kind of stories one would fabricate if they were fabricating a story. Four years ago, I gave a sermon on Easter, and I remember the line that I said like 20 times throughout the whole thing because I wanted it to stick in everybody's minds was, if you were making up a story, this is not the kind of story that you would make up. Maybe that still sounds familiar to some of you. <laughs> Um, and when I was studying the resurrection accounts this week, I was struck by that all over again. If you were going to make up stories, these are not the kind of stories you would make up. And there are so many reasons for that. But just to give you a few examples, okay. For one thing, who are the first witnesses to the empty tomb and to the angels? And in some of the accounts, we're told to Jesus himself. They're women. And that's very significant because in those days, women were not considered to be able to give reliable eyewitness testimony. Now, I know that's really stupid, right? That's ridiculous. But that was the world in the first century. That was the way it was. And so if you were making up a story, it would be counterproductive to make women be the first witnesses. And we even see that in the account itself, right? We see that attitude, that dismissive attitude towards the women. Uh, in, uh, what was it? Yeah, verse 7, I believe it was. Um, the disciples say, they, it says they did not believe the women. Why? Because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Oh, those hysterical women saying that the tomb was empty, you know? 
Right? This was the attitude that was so common, so prevalent in that time. So if the, the account was fabricated, it would not read like this. Right? But it does, which suggests to us this is a genuine recounting of actual events. Okay? Uh, verse 34 is another example of what I'm talking about. Uh, we're told that when the two guys on the road to um, when the two guys on the road from Emmaus see Jesus, um, these guys are not one of the twelve disciples or two of the twelve disciples, right? I say they're no names. We've never heard of these guys before now. So if you were one of the disciples making up this account, fabricating an account about resurrection, why would you have these no names meet Jesus? before you even get to see him, right? That's a, that's a really weird decision. Also, notice that when the guys from Emmaus come and tell the disciples, we have this one brief line where the disciples say, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Now, Simon is another name for Peter. So they're saying, oh yeah, that's awesome. We haven't seen him yet, but Peter did see him. Now, if you're anything like me, that leads to the question, well, I want to hear more about when Peter saw the resurrected Jesus. Where can I learn about that? And you can look at all the gospel accounts, and you'll never see a detailed description of what it was like when Peter encountered the resurrected Jesus. Now, that's bad storytelling, to be honest. Like, I don't want to hear about these nobodies on the road to Emmaus. I want to hear about what it was like when Peter saw the resurrected Jesus. But we don't get the details of that. Why not? Well, if you were fabricating a story, you would give those kinds of details, right? But we don't get those kinds of details. Why? Well, because those who compiled the story, wrote it down, didn't have the details available to them. They're just recounting what happened, right? The disciples said Peter saw him too. For whatever reason, Peter didn't divulge exactly what happened. Or we just don't have access to that information. We don't know. But all that points to, to this idea that this is not just made up, right? If you were making up a story, this is not the kind of story that you would make up. So we don't have time to get into all the reasons. But if you look at the resurrection accounts closely, you see that they have the ring of truth to them. Okay, they do not sound like made-up stories. They sound like actual attempts to recount history. And that gives us reason to trust them. So those are some reasons from the Gospels and from history to believe in the resurrection. But I want to propose one more. Okay, number five. Reason to believe the resurrection, because we see the power of the resurrection at work in people's lives today. This might be the best one at all of all. Um, there are so many people who have stories of moving from death to life after putting their faith in Jesus. So many people who have stories like that. If you've been here long enough, you've heard me say this before. But I'll say it again. I have never heard anyone who said something like, I was once a drug addict. I was once an alcoholic. I was once a violent criminal. I was once 
filled with rage and anger. But then one day I realized that God doesn't exist and my life was transformed. (laughs) Nobody has a story like that, right? But there are so many people that have a story of, I was all those things, but then I came to believe in Jesus. And I was transformed. I was raised from death to life. I'm not the same person that I was anymore. I changed. That is what the power of the resurrection looks like when it's at work in people's lives today. There's a worship song that I really like. And there's a line in it that says, the resurrected king is resurrecting me. And that's a line that resonates with a lot of people. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. When you experience the power of the resurrection in your own life, that's way more persuasive than those arguments that I just gave before. Those things are interesting. Those things are confirming, right? But you know on some deep level of your being that the resurrection is true because you've experienced the power of it in your own life. That, I think, is the greatest evidence of all. So, those are some of the reasons why belief in the resurrection is a plane worth boarding. It's it's reasonable. But remember, okay, even if you're not completely convinced, you can still choose, choose to hope in Christ's resurrection. You know, just as you cannot be 100% certain when you board a plane that it's not going to crash, you can still choose to get on that plane. You can still choose to board it. And if you're still, you're still on the fence, remember what I said earlier. This is a plane worth boarding, not only because it's trustworthy, but because of where it takes you. Because of the destination, right? Believing in the resurrection can transform your life. It can move you from despair to joy. It can give you resources to resist evil in the world. It can empower you to love sacrificially. It can reduce your fear of death. It can free you. You know, isn't that a destination that's worth a little tiny bit of risk, worth that step of faith to get on the plane, right? To put your faith in Jesus. All right, so I've said a lot this morning about reasons to believe in the resurrection, speaking directly towards those who might be doubting, who might be struggling. But I want to finish by speaking to a different group of people. Maybe you don't have trouble believing in the resurrection. Okay, maybe that's not an issue for you. Maybe you believe that it has the power to save people. But your problem is that you're not sure it applies to you. Your problem is you're not sure that Jesus wants to give you eternal life. Maybe you think, I've sinned too much. I have denied Jesus too much with the way that I've lived. And I'm sure that this just isn't for me. This is for other people. Well, if that's you, there's something I want to say. In Mark's account of the resurrection, the angel says, You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. Now, there's a little detail there that's kind of weird. Did you notice? The angel says, 
Tell his disciples and Peter. Why single out Peter? Peter is one of the disciples, right? Or maybe his, his, his uh, being part of the disciples is in, in question right now. That's why I think Peter gets singled out. Because remember, before all this, before the resurrection, what happened? Peter denied Jesus, right? Three times he said, I don't even know that guy when he was questioned. And this was after Jesus warned him, you're going to deny me. And Peter was like, no, he swore up and down, I'm never going to deny you. I'd be willing to die for you. And yet he still did it, right? So if anyone was aware of this, that Peter had denied Jesus, they might be thinking, Peter's out of the club at this point. He failed. And that's why I think the angel goes out of its way to emphasize Tell his disciples and Peter. Why? Because he's saying Peter's not out of the club. Jesus still wants Peter to be on his team. Jesus still wants to restore Peter. He still wants to meet with him in Galilee. He still wants to consider him one of his disciples. Right? That's why that's emphasized. And Peter. And Peter. So if you feel like you've messed up too much in your life, to be part of Jesus' team, if you feel like you've messed up too much for the resurrection to apply to you, okay, you need to hear this. And Peter, okay, Jesus is still extending the call for you to be one of his disciples. He is still offering you the power that comes from the resurrection. Today, he is extending that invitation to you. So don't don't turn down that invitation. Heed it. Respond to it. It's for you too. Today, may you choose to trust in the reality and the power of the resurrection. And may you experience the resurrected king resurrecting you. Amen? Amen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Lord Jesus... Uh, we thank you so much for these reminders this morning. And Lord, I, I just pray that the reality of your resurrection would hit us anew this morning. Uh, that we would be filled with joy as we recognize your victory over death and the victory that we can experience through you. Lord, if anyone is uncertain about putting their faith in you, about boarding that plane, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they feel like the time has come to step on, to trust you, and to walk with you, Lord, for the rest of their days. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.